It was 1995 when I first celebrated Christmas as a brand new believer. At that point in time, I was not not only an artist for the Austin Chronicle, but I was also a resident artist at Tower Records here in Austin. And so it was my job to uh, put up all of the Christmas displays there inside Tower Records. I remember receiving corporate guidelines by company management, which provided me with all the permission I needed to put up any secular holiday symbols like Christmas trees and snowmen, elves and Santa Claus, of course. At the same time, corporate guidelines uh, forbid me from putting up anything that might offend people. I wasn't allowed to put up a nativity scene in Tower Records, and the reason why is because, well, they didn't want to offend anyone by forcing customers to consider the Christ of Christmas. Now, I must confess that I've always been a bit of a rebel, and so, you know, I kind of saw these corporate guidelines as rules to be broken, and so, you know, I actually went and I found a, a small nativity scene, and I put it inside of a, of a gift box. It was like a Christmas present all wrapped up nice. And I put the nativity scene scene inside of the gift box with a few lights that were lighting up the inside of the box. And, you know, I cut a small viewing window in the top of this box so that you could, if you wanted to, peek inside and see what was there. And, of course, if you did, then you would see this nativity scene. But rather than running the risk of offending anybody with this little present, I wrote a word of warning on the lid of this box, which encouraged every person to avoid looking through that peephole because the package contained such offensive content that I wouldn't want anybody offended by it. And so I just let everybody know that, you know, content was offensive, so please don't look. As you might expect, most people threw caution into the wind and looked inside only to see such an offensive sight of a nativity scene. And in this way, I felt like I was doing what I could, at least, to keep Christ at the center of Christmas there in Tower Records. Now, here we are, it's 2022, and I'm a pastor, and Tower Records is gone. So, (laughs) you, you tell me what to think about all that. But this morning, I want to spend some time wrapping up our study on the importance of having a Christ-centered Christmas. And by way of review, we're beginning this study with a focus on the, uh, on, on the way that as Christians, we can make sure to keep Christ at the center. Uh, you know, we began this study with a focus on the wise investment of, of the wise men. And, and, you know, we considered the way that those wise men spent their time seeking out the baby Jesus, and that was incredible. Then in our last study, we considered the wonderful transformation of the shepherds and and how their lives were changed as they worshipped the baby Jesus. But now, here in our time today, we're going to consider the worthy incarnation of Mary's first baby, Jesus. With this as our focus, I'd like you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. If you would, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, where we find Matthew's account of our Savior's birth. Now, as you make your way to the first chapter of Matthew's gospel account, I'd like to take some time to remind you that the Christ-centered Christmas is focused on the worthy incarnation of Christ Jesus. 
And with this as our focus, we're going to consider how the birth of the baby Jesus, it actually helps us to see that the worthy incarnation of Christ, well, this provides us with the favor of God. Secondly, we'll see how the worthy incarnation of Christ, it provides us with the forgiveness of sins. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider how the worthy incarnation of Christ, it provides us with the fulfillment of promise. With this as our outline, let's begin to examine the testimony of Matthew, which is found here in Matthew chapter 1. If you would look with me there at verse 18. Here we learn that the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to stop right here. I want to take a moment to consider the awkward situation that Matthew was describing. And we should first notice this news about Mary's pregnancy. This was discovered after she was betrothed, or, or in other words, she was already engaged to be married to Joseph, and yet she wasn't yet married. She wasn't yet married when it was discovered that she was pregnant. Now, in order to better grasp the details of this discovery, I'd like you to hold your place here in the Gospel of Matthew, and I want to consider Luke's account. So, if you would, let's turn to to Luke chapter 1. You see, it's here in the first chapter of Luke. This is where we find Luke uh, recounting the conversation that occurred on the day when the angel Gabriel was sent to the house of Mary. And with this as the focus, if you would look with me here at Luke chapter 1, I want to draw your attention there to verse 26. Here Luke writes, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now I want to stop here for a moment because I want to point uh, point out one important detail. If you would notice again there in verse 28, there the angel Gabriel refers to Mary as the highly favored one. In other words, Gabriel was referring to Mary as a person who had received the unearned and unmerited grace of God. That's that's what that word favor means. It it speaks of unearned and unmerited grace. And we should also notice there in verse 30 where Gabriel declares, you have found favor with God. Once again, Gabriel is referring to this unearned grace and unmerited kindness of God. Why did God choose Mary over all the other women? Well, it was his unearned and unmerited favor. Why was she blessed among women? Well, because it was God's unearned and unmerited favor. It wasn't like God looked down and, 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 saw, and saw the Theotokos you know, the sinless ever virgin Mary and thought, well, clearly this has got to be, you know, the, the mother of the almighty here. No, 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 it was God's favor. And it was unearned and unmerited by Mary. According to this angel, the Lord was about to grant Mary the greatest gift 
of his gracious favor. And with this in mind, let's continue to reading uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning there at verse 31. Here, the angel Gabriel goes on to tell Mary this. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I do not know a man. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, That holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now here in these verses, we find the angel Gabriel. He's describing the sort of favor that Mary found with the Lord. And as we consider Mary's reaction, it's important for us to remember that this pregnancy would have been considered an extremely scandalous thing there in the first century uh, and uh, there in Israel. This would have been a scandalous pregnancy for several reasons. First of all, Mary's pregnancy would have been scandalous because people would have known that she ended up getting pregnant prior to her wedding day. And, and while this is really, you know, not such a scandalous thing here in 21st century America, this would have been extremely scandalous back then. And, and, and people would have seen her as some sort of immoral woman. Secondly, since Mary was a virgin, uh, she had yet to have uh, a physical relationship with her own fiance. There's, uh, therefore, Joseph would have known that he wasn't the father of this child. We can guess that Mary was worried about the impact that this pregnancy would have on her relationship with Joseph. Finally, imagine for a moment what people would think of Mary if she actually told them the truth. How would they think of her if she actually came right out and said, say, hey, say, hey, everybody, I'm pregnant. Oh, and, and it's God's. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're thinking she's cuckoo. Seriously, take a moment to imagine the conversation as Mary attempts to explain to Joseph that, yeah, he's not the father. And he says, oh, well, who is? And she says, it's God. You know, how do you explain to Joseph? Yeah, well, it's going to be an artificial insemination supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Clearly, this supernatural pregnancy was going to end up causing many relational complications for Mary, and yet it's billed as the favor of God. (laughs) Hey, God, don't do me any favors, all right? As we consider all of these complications, we have to wonder, you know, what sort of favor is this? And we should ask, why would a gracious God put a highly favored person like Mary through all of this drama Well, in order to answer this question, it's important for us to understand that this supernatural pregnancy was God's way of providing favor to Mary as well as to the rest of mankind. And in order to explain what I mean, if you would continue holding your place there in, in the gospel of Matthew, and let's make our way to the book of Galatians. If you would, let's, let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. Now, as you make your way to the fourth chapter of Galatians, I just want to remind you that the favor of God, again, is unearned and unmerited. When we speak about the favor or the grace of God, we have to recognize that it's something that you cannot earn, uh, 
And it's nothing that you can merit. And while it's true that the favor which resulted in Mary's unusual pregnancy was sure to cause these relational complications, this is the same favor that would end up providing the world with a supernatural savior. This is the favor that brought forth the incarnate word of God by which sinners can be saved. This is precisely the point that Paul is making here in Galatians chapter 4. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me there, beginning at verse 4, here Paul writes, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Wow. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping us to understand that God sent forth his only begotten son, to be born of a woman. And remember, Mary was the highly favored one who was chosen to bring forth this supernatural son. And according to, the, to Paul here, this incarnation was necessary for our salvation. The, the physical incarnation of the only begotten son of God was necessary so that sinners could be saved. You see, the first advent of our Savior was all about his physical incarnation. In other words, the immaterial, infinite logos of God came and and was covered in human frailty there in the womb of Mary so that Jesus could be born under the law. And it was necessary for him to be born under the law so that he could then fulfill the law as a human and then redeem those who had broken the law. And what this means then is that the gracious favor that was provided through the womb of Mary has then been extended to the rest of the world through the physical incarnation of our Savior Jesus. Therefore, the incarnation of Jesus reminds us that the favor of God is now available to every sinner by faith in Jesus Christ. The worthy incarnation of Christ provides us with the unearned and unmerited favor of God. And not only does the worthy incarnation provide us with the favor of God, but listen, the worthy incarnation of Christ provides us with the forgiveness of sins. And and in order to explain what I mean, let's make our way back to Matthew chapter one, where we learn about the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. If you would look with me once again, beginning there at Matthew chapter one, verse 18, Here Matthew writes, now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, 
was minded to put her away secretly. Now I want to stop right here just for a second because I just want to point out that the word husband found there in verse 19 it, it, it really isn't the best translation of the original Greek word. And, and I, I say this uh, because the context uh, would actually pu- uh, push this into a different direction. Now, uh, I should point out that the Greek word can actually be translated husband, so it's not incorrect. But it's also a word that could refer to a man who's engaged and not yet married. And, and based on the context of verse 18, well, verse 19 would be better rendered fiancé. We know that they're betrothed, but not married. Therefore, he must not be a husband yet, but rather a fiance. Therefore, verse 19 should read in this way. Then Joseph, her fiance, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. I should also point out that Joseph's decision to put Mary away secretly, well, it shows that this was a man of true compassion. The reason I say this is due to the fact that an Israelite who discovered that his fiance had already engaged in premarital sex with another man, well, this man had the judicial right to take this fiance of his to the city gate to be judged by the officials and then stoned to death for her sins. That was a legal right. And Joseph could have called for this execution of Mary, but he didn't. Instead, he determined to put her away secretly so that she might not be punished. From this, we can see that Joseph was a compassionate man who was willing to forgive Mary for getting pregnant, you know, before they got married, but, uh, but, but, but not call for her execution. Well, as Joseph was thinking out these things and, you know, as he was preparing to make his decisions, that's when an angel appeared to him and confirmed Mary's supernatural story. And with this in mind, let's pick up our study of Matthew chapter one. Look with me there at verse 20. Here, Matthew tells us that while Joseph thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus or he will save his people from their sins. Now here in these verses, Matthew tells us about this moment when an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. This angel appears to him in a dream and it happened while he was contemplating his decision about secretly putting Mary away. And, and the chances are he was struggling to make sense of Mary's pregnancy. You see, Mary was a woman of great character. You know, and so Joseph probably had no reason to think that she was lying. And, and yet he was without doubt, you know, struggling to believe this odd explanation. Because seriously, how can anyone in their right mind believe that their pregnant fiance was somehow artificially inseminated supernaturally? That would just be a tough Tough, tough pill to swallow there. Well, thankfully for his family, you know, the angel of the Lord showed up in order to provide this relationship with some divine intervention. And, you know, the angel did this by confirming Mary's testimony regarding her pregnancy. As a matter of fact, notice again there in verse 20. There again, the angel declares, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now here in this simple statement, the angel of the Lord presents one of the most profound truths ever uttered. And I say this because according to this angel, Mary was just months away from giving birth to the incarnation of the word. 
Mary was, what, nine months away from giving birth to the savior of sinners who was the worthy incarnation of the Logos of God. How incredible is that? Notice again in verse 21 where the angel went on to tell Joseph that Mary was going to bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus literally means. Yahweh is salvation. In the original Hebrew, the the name Jesus or Yeshua Uh, was designed to reveal how Yahweh is the one who rescues us and delivers us from the punishment that we deserve. And listen, this name was chosen so that we might know that salvation could be provided to us by faith in Mary's supernatural son. Now, in order to understand how the birth of Mary's child was designed to provide us with this free gift of salvation, I'd like you to hold your place here in, in Matthew And turn with me to the book of Colossians. If you would, let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Colossians, I I just want to take a moment to, to point out that the birth of the baby Jesus, it points us to the gracious favor, which is found in the worthy incarnation of Christ Jesus. And, and to, to more fully grasp this, it's important to understand that this favor of God, this unearned and unmerited grace stems from this gift of forgiveness that results in our salvation. Now, in order to explain what I mean by this, it's important for us to understand, first of all, that God is holy. God is not only holy, but he is holy, holy, and once more holy. That's how the, the, the God of the Bible is described. He, he is described as holy, holy, holy. And, you know, if you'll allow me just a little bit of sanctified speculation, you know, I believe that this is a perfect, uh, you know, presentation of the holiness of the triunity of God. Because the Father is holy, and the Son is holy, and the Holy Spirit, well, his name speaks for itself. God is holy, holy, holy. God is pure and perfect and sinless. Not only that, but he is perfectly just. And a perfectly just and holy God must punish every single sin with perfect justice. If God fails to punish even one sin, then he is no longer perfect in justice. If he fails to punish one single sin, then he fails to be God. And he cannot deny himself. Therefore, he must punish every single sin. And seeing how we've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of God's perfect standard, well, the fact is we all deserve to be punished. I'm sure we'd all love the favor of God, but what we deserve is punishment. Thankfully for us, God created a loophole of love. And listen, if you've ever had uh, issues with the law, uh, then, you know, the point is looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes, looking for some way that the law, you know, can't, can't punish you for your sin. Well, listen, God created a loving loophole for sinners like us. 
God created a, a loving loophole so that he could serve a perfect punishment for every sin, remaining just, while simultaneously extending his gracious gift of favor to every single sinner, thereby becoming the justifier of those who take advantage of this loophole. And if you want to understand my point, trust me when I tell you that Mary's first child is this loving loophole. And the reason why is because the worthy incarnation of Christ is the only begotten son of God who was sent to settle our sin debt so that God could remain just and then become the justifier of those who trust in Jesus Christ. This is precisely the point that Paul is making here in Colossians chapter 1. And with this in mind, look with me there beginning at, at verse 13. Here Paul assures us that God the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping the Christians there in Colossae to understand that God the Father sent his only begotten son to put on human frailty there within the womb of the Virgin Mary so that he could then come and reconcile all things to himself through the loophole of his love. And in order to understand how this loophole works, we should notice again there in verse 14, there Paul tells us that we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. Through the shedding of his blood on the cross, the blood which first began to be formed there in the womb of the Virgin Mary, which was then shed upon the cross, was shed so that we might be forgiven. And there in verse 20, we learn that we have peace through the blood of his cross. And as we consider what Paul was saying, we can see how the forgiveness that results in our redemption was purchased there on the cross where the supernatural son of Mary received the punishment that we deserve. Our savior had to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that his blood could be shed for our sins so that our sin debt could be paid and so that we could then receive the forgiveness of sins that we do not deserve. 
Based on all of this, we can see why Christmas is such a special occasion. And while the true meaning of Christmas can be easily lost in a sea of decorations and to-do lists, we must not lose sight of the real reason for this season. We must not lose sight of the real reason for why the first advent of Jesus Christ is such a joyous occasion to be celebrated. You see, it's through the physical incarnation of God the Son that we are now provided with the forgiveness of sins, which was purchased with the blood of Jesus there on the cross on that day when the supernatural Son of Mary received the punishment that we deserve. And now those who trust in Jesus can receive the unearned and unmerited favor of God, which results in the forgiveness of sins. And, and listen, all of this is according to the promises of God. Now this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, the worthy incarnation of Christ not only provides us with the favor of God and the forgiveness of sins, but the worthy incarnation of Christ also provides us with the fulfillment of God's promises. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Matthew chapter one. Here we we find uh, more about this fulfillment of promise. If you would look with me again at Matthew chapter one, we'll pick up at verse 22. Here Matthew writes, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. Now here in these verses, Matthew tells us that all of these things were done so that the prophecy that was previously presented by the Lord might be fulfilled. Think about that for a moment. All of these things were done so that the words of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now, the word fulfilled here is found there in verse 22. It comes from a Greek word which is used uh, uh, to describe something that's been accomplished or completed. And in this context, Matthew is writing about the fulfillment or the accomplishment of a specific Old Testament prophecy. Notice again in verse 23, Matthew again presents this prophecy by declaring, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This prophecy, which was originally presented by the prophet Isaiah, it can actually be found in Isaiah chapter 7, if you want to go study that for homework. But according to this prophecy, you know, the promised Messiah would be born of a virgin, or in other words, the, the, the sanctified savior of sinners would come from the womb of a woman who had never been physically intimate with a man. And according to this prophecy, this child would be known as Emmanuel, which is not his name, but rather this would be his title. This is a title that Matthew tells us means God with us. Now we know that Jesus is the one who has fulfilled this prophecy. So Jesus, therefore, has received the title Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. This prophecy seems like 
an illogical impossibility to imagine that a virgin would give birth to a son and that the son would be God with us. And yet Matthew assures us that this prophecy was fulfilled on the day when Mary gave birth to the baby Jesus. God fulfilled his promise. And not only did Matthew confirm the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy, but so did Luke. As a matter of fact, if you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Matthew and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. And as you make your way to the second chapter of Luke, I just want to take a moment to remind you that it was earlier in this study when I pointed out that Luke has already referred to Mary as the virgin who was highly favored of the Lord. Remember, it was in the first chapter of of his Gospel account. That's where Luke tells us that the Virgin Mary was the chosen one uh, who, who was chosen to give birth to the supernatural son of God. And now here in the second chapter of his gospel, Luke writes about the fulfillment of this promise. But this, as the focus, if you would look with me here at Luke chapter two, beginning at, uh, at verse one there, here Luke tells us that it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Here in these verses, we find Luke, he's confirming the fact that the Virgin Mary did indeed give birth to a baby boy there in the city of Bethlehem. And according to Isaiah, this virgin birth would be the sign that God had come to the earth in the form of a human child. Therefore, the the worthy incarnation of Christ Jesus, it helps us to see that God fulfills his promises. And listen, this wasn't the only promise that was fulfilled by the incarnation of Jesus. Remember, uh, as we saw in the first study of this series, the wise men from the east came looking for the Messiah who had been promised in the prophecies of Daniel. And after arriving in Jerusalem, the religious leaders used another prophecy from Micah, which, you know, directed them to the little town of Bethlehem, where the the Messiah was promised to have been born. And it was there in Bethlehem where they found the fulfillment of these promises, just as God had revealed in the second study of this special series, we found the angel of the Lord encouraging a group of shepherds in the field to go and find this promised child who was in fact the Lord of heaven and earth. This of course was a fulfillment of the promise that God presented through the prophet Isaiah who informs us that the Messiah would be the son who was given and the child who was born. Jesus is in fact the child of Mary and the son of God. As we consider these prophetic promises which were fulfilled on the day of Jesus' birth, we should be moved by the simple fact that the God of the Bible is a God who makes incredible promises. And not only that, but he keeps them. I'm sure we all know people who make incredible promises and then struggle to keep them. I'm guessing we know a few people who make incredible promises and fail to keep them. 
But God makes incredible promises and keeps them 100% of the time. That being the case, we should take one more look at the promise that was presented and, and, then, and then fulfilled on the day when Joseph named the baby Jesus. But this has the focus. Let's make our way back to Matthew chapter 1. I want you to turn back to Matthew 1, and, and I want to pick up at verse 24. Here Matthew writes, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till uh, she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Here in these verses, we learn about the way that Joseph obeyed the instructions that he had received during that angelic vision. And as a result, he, he took Mary to become his wife. And, and then he turned around and named her firstborn son, Jesus, according to the revealed will of God. And, and notice with me again there at the end of verse 21, where the angel tells Joseph that he should call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now there's a promise that this child, the baby Jesus, is Yahweh saves because he will save his people. The name of our Savior is all about the promise to save those who trust in him. And in order to explain what I mean, I want to remind you that the name Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation. And, and you better believe that this name was chosen by God in order to present the promise, which is fulfilled in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And what this means is this, that every sinner can now be saved from the punishment that we deserve just by faith in the fulfilled promise of God. And as we embrace the fulfilled promise of God by faith in Jesus Christ, the promise is once again fulfilled. As a matter of fact, every time a sinner places their faith in Jesus Christ, the promise that's found in the name of Jesus Christ is fulfilled once again. Because yet one more person has been saved from their sins by the one who is called Yahweh is salvation. It's incredible. And it's important to understand that this promise isn't based on our works. This promise of salvation isn't based on our ability to maintain our salvation. It's not based on the fact that, that you know, if we can just earn it, if we can just merit it, if we can just do enough, if we, if we can just, you know, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Nope. This is a promise that is entirely based upon the good work of Jesus Christ. And what he fulfilled there on the cross. To prove my point, I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Peter's second epistle, I want to take a moment to examine the difference between the promises made by Santa Claus and the promise made by Jesus Christ. I remember when I was a kid, you know, my parents would tell me that bad children get coal for Christmas and, and that if I wasn't good, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd find nothing but coal in my stocking and that sort of thing, right? It was the good children. The children who were good would receive the gifts that they asked for. And so it was, it was your goal to be, you know, good and, and, and not naughty and, 
And then the closer it got to Christmas Day, the more they would stress this promise of present-based repercussions. And so, you know, as, as, as it was November, working into December, you know, the, the minute me and my siblings would start acting up, it was like, you know, be careful, Santa Claus is watching, you know, he's checking his list. From this, we can see that Santa Claus is a legalist. He's totally legalistic. It's a works-based message that, you know, the, the presence that you received is based on you being a good person. And then come to find out every year that Santa Claus is not only a legalist, but he's a liar. He's a liar. Why? Well, because I was always a bad kid, but never just got coal. I always got presents. Yeah. I was a rotten kid. And yet every year, no coal, all presents. So yeah, I, I, you know, it didn't take long for me to figure out that, you know, Santa Claus must not be, you know, not all knowing at least. I mean, he, he doesn't really see all the bad things that I'm doing, apparently. Keeps giving me presents when I deserve coal. Then came the day when I found out my parents have been lying to me the whole time and well, that's a whole different story there. But listen, the story of Santa Claus in his, you know, you be good and you get presents, this is actually in conflict with the gospel of grace, which says the gift of grace is extended to you no matter how bad you've been. Jesus Christ promises the, the gift of grace no matter how bad we've been. And, and not only that, but think about the contrast here. Santa says, be good, and you get the gift. Jesus says, you're bad, but if you receive this gift, I'll make you good. Completely different. God promises to provide the gift of his grace to those who will simply agree with him that we need a savior. And as we, received his, as we receive his free gift of grace, he then begins to change our lives, transforming us into good people. This gift of salvation has been offered to every single sinner. And according to Peter, this gift of grace promises to take bad people like me and make them good. Let's consider how Peter puts it here in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Peter writes, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, by, 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 by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, you may be partakers of what? The divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
Here in these verses, we learn that the precious promises of God, they're much different from the promise of Santa. Santa promises gifts to those who are good, while Jesus promises to make us good if we'll simply receive his gift of grace. That being the case, I want to remind you that the Christ-centered Christmas is a Christmas that can actually change lives. The Christ-centered Christmas, which is about the incarnation of Christ Jesus, it's a focus that can change our lives because those who will simply receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, it's, it's not my desire to rob anyone here of having the merriest Christmas possible. So please understand that if decorating Christmas trees and, and telling stories about socially awkward reindeer who saved the day, you know, if these, if these are the sort of things that help you to worship Jesus all the more, you know, then go for it. Have fun with it. If engaging in these holiday traditions are meaningful for you and help you to worship our Messiah, then by all means, you ought to. But when all is said and done, listen, stories of Santa and and expensive presents won't change lives. Just think back to last year or the year before or the year before, et cetera, et cetera. Think back to what you believed would be the best gift ever. Can you even remember what that gift was? And where is it now? Broken? Got the upgrade? Every year it's something different. Every year, oh, this is the gift. This is, this is the thing. It's, it's, this is going to change my life. And within a year, it's like, haven't seen that thing in months. But the story of our Savior's birth can actually change lives. And the reason why is because the incarnation of Christ Jesus is the way that God has fulfilled his precious, his precious promise to send a Savior who can come and transform us and make us into the people that we really wished we were. Jesus and Jesus alone, therefore, is worthy of our worship this Advent season. Jesus and Jesus alone should be the the focus of our Christmas celebration. And just to drive my point home, I would argue that I think we all want, you know, just like, a wonderful Christmas celebration. I, you know, uh, and, and just to, just to kind of make my point here. You know, when, when we're having like the best day of our life or the best experience in our life, we think, oh man, that's a little taste of heaven, right? We just think that's, that, that, that's what heaven's, heaven's going to be like that. Heaven's going to be, you know, so wonderful like that, you know? And so we, we tend to compare like the best moments of our life to, to something that might be like in heaven, Right? And so, so what would it be like if Christmas were like a little taste of heaven? Well, in order to answer this question, I would direct your attention to Revelation chapter 5. It's here where the Apostle John describes 
a little taste of heaven. And it's beginning in verse 11 where John writes, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is Santa Claus, who was, oh no, sorry, that's not what it says. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. According to John, everyone in heaven is focused on Jesus, the lamb of God. They're not singing about Santa. They're not singing about reindeer. They're not singing about snowmen. They're singing about Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain for our sins. That being the case, if you want your Christmas celebration to be heavenly, if you want it to be divine, Make sure it's centered on Jesus because Jesus alone is worthy to receive our power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and everything. You want your Christmas to be a heavenly celebration? Make sure that it's all about Jesus who is worthy of our worship. With this as the focus, I encourage you to remember that a Christ-centered Christmas is focused on the worthy incarnation of our Savior. The reason why is because the worthy incarnation of Christ provides us with first the favor of God. Uh, The worthy incarnation also provides us with the forgiveness of sins. And the worthy incarnation of Christ provides us with the fulfillment of promise. And in light of these truths, we should spend some time this season celebrating our Savior who clothed himself with humanity through this incarnation so that humans might receive the free gift of of grace by which we are saved. And, And while we ought to encourage every person to receive this free gift of grace by which we are saved, I also encourage every Christian to keep Christ at the center of Christmas by making sure that we are giving ourselves to him. Remember, this celebration is about the birth of our Savior Jesus. It's his birthday. What are you getting Jesus this year? Well, I encourage you to give him the best gift that you can. Just yourself. Give yourself to Jesus presently and forever because this is the best way to keep Christ at the center of Christmas. Let's pray.